Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Well, well, welcome, everyone. Good evening. Um, I'm the marketing director at Ignatius Press, and uh, it's really a great honor to welcome uh, one of our favorite authors at Ignatius Press, Father Donald Haggerty, to have this conversation about his latest book that we've published called Contemplative Enigmas. So, Father Haggerty, welcome. It's really a great uh, privilege to speak with you today. Thank you so much, Tony. I appreciate that. We really love you, and we love your books at Ignatius Press. Uh, we've published four books now. As I mentioned, we're going to talk about one of them, and maybe we can touch base on all four of them before we're finished. But before we um, get into the book, let me just give people a little background on on your your um, who you are and your, your little quick bio of you, so they know in case they're new to you. Father Donald Haggerty is a priest of the Archdiocese of New York. He's been a professor of moral theology at St. Joseph's Seminary in New York and also at St. Mary's Seminary in Maryland. He also has a long association as a spiritual director for Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity, which is exciting. I'd like to talk about that when we're talking. And Father, I believe you also did some work in the mission field in Ethiopia. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. I was four years in uh, Ethiopia, living in Addis Ababa, teaching in the seminary, uh, and also doing work with the missionaries of charity there. That's beautiful. Um, and then uh, presently, Father is a parish priest at the uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. He is the author of four inspiring books from Ignatius Press. They are Contemplative Hunger, Contemplative Provocations, Conversion, and the most recent contemplative enigmas, which is our the thing we talk about today. Uh, Father Haggerty, because of these books, has become a favorite spiritual writer of many Catholics today. And let me, I have actually three of the books here at my home. I'm doing this interview from my home, so um, I'm happy I found three of them. I'll just hold them up real quick. Here's the contemplative provocations. I think the first title we published by you. And then the second one, conversion. I want to tell you a little story about that real quickly when I'm done. And then the, the third one, or actually the current one, the one we're talking about now is Contemplative Enigmas. And the one I don't have handy here at home, it's probably somewhere in my book called Contemplative Hunger. Uh, before we start, I just want to tell you a quick little um, anecdote, personal story that I learned of today connected with you and about your books. And that is that there is a young man that is now in the seminary at St. Pat for Saint, uh, your seminary for the Diocese of New York, who, who went to school here in Napa. He's a long friend of ours. His name is Paul Kacharski. So Paul Kacharski graduated from a school we started here called Trinity Prep. Uh, he probably graduated, you know, 23 years ago or something like that. And I was in touch with him recently to find out how he's doing. He went on to get a PhD at Fordham University in philosophy. And then he took a job teaching philosophy at Manhattanville College there. Uh, but he started discerning a vocation or possible vocation of priesthood during his time in teaching philosophy. And he said he got to know you and you've helped him along the way a lot, he said, in discerning his uh, you know, a possible vocation of priesthood and actually going into the seminary. So he left Manhattanville College after teaching there 10 or 11 years and is now in his first year in the seminary there for the Archdiocese in New York. And he told me 
besides knowing you and all the help you've given him, uh, he loved your books. And he said one of the most important spiritual books he's ever read is your book, Conversion. And now reading this latest one, Contemplative Enigmas. And he's going to watch this interview. So I thought you would enjoy hearing that story. Well, th thank you, Tony. Paul is an outstanding person. And you know, he's, uh, he's been a gift to, to come to know him. I mean, really, such a story. He was, you know, PhD, philosophy professor so many years, and now, in humility, beginning to study theology with young seminarians. A great person. Yeah, really great. And, uh, but anyway, thank you for your uh, helping him. Thanks for the influence on him. So, Father, uh, before we begin, let me just read a quick little summary of your book so people can have a little bit of an idea about it before we start discussing it. I'll give you, I'm just going to read a few sentences that describe the book here. Uh, as I mentioned, this is the fourth book we've published by you, and, and um, hopefully we can say something about all, all four before we're done. This one is called Contemplative Enigmas, Insights and Aid uh, on the Path to Deeper Prayer. Deep, despite uh, signs in recent decades of a crisis in the church, a countercurrent of intense interest in prayer and a close relationship with God is clearly at work today. A deeper esteem for contemplation has accompanied this turning to prayer, and many people desire spiritual guidance. Written by a recognized expert on contemplative prayer, this book, Contemplative Enigmas, concentrates on the interior hardships experienced by souls who give themselves to God wholeheartedly. More than a summary of the symptoms of interior trial, these poignant observations are the fruit of the author's many years in retreat work. Father Haggerty invites you to ponder the subject of spiritual darkness, perplexity, and other struggles in the spiritual life, always in the light of a, lug of a loving God who draws souls ever closer to himself. So, Father, uh, that's a little summary of your book. Let me start by asking you... Um, what made you decide to write this particular book on this topic? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about the title, which I find intriguing with the word enigma. Well, I wrote this uh, in part because I felt it had unfinished business from the um, previous books. Two other books on contemplative themes, contemplative patience, the contemplative hunger. And I felt this was a third book that um, I had material, many passages that I had written down, and, and there is this um, ongoing need of people over long term in spiritual life and serious about prayer to, um, to have encouraging light on some of the perplexity, you know, the confusions, the difficulty of serious relations with God. And, so I wrote it for not. It's not a book for you know learning how to pray contemplative prayer, but more a, a, a book of serious spirituality. And um, as somebody wrote in the Amazon uh, uh, notice, there it's not a book for beginners. On the other hand, I think many people who are trying to learn to pray, it's good to to read things that elevate our awareness. How serious is to pursue God. Okay, so that's great. So um, it's uh, kind of the next step, it sounds like it's, uh, as you mentioned, the third book and kind of a trilogy, it sounds like. Uh, you probably didn't start off uh, initially thinking you're going to write a trilogy, but 
sounds like that's kind of how it's developed. Is would you agree with that? I mean, that's more or less what happened. And yeah. um, the first book had a serious theme of hid hiddenness of God, God's concealment, and mm -hmm. how that provokes us to a greater generosity. And then, I mean, we all experience this hunger for God, maybe more than ever now. The church is uh, closed. The mass is unavailable in many places, hopefully opening up soon. But this, uh, this third book, you know, Enigmas, you asked about why enigmas, not so much because they are problems that can be solved, but, you know, there are, you know, difficulties that have to be lived with, you know, a certain perseverance through darkness, through obscurity that we have to live with. So there's an enigma there, but there's also St. John of the Cross had a great comment when he said, faith gives certitude to us, not so much clarity at all, but certitude. And that's the, you know, that's learning how to live with this difficulty of deeper faith over time. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so, you know, in, in trying to think about who you were hoping to reach writing such a book, I mean, it sounds like part of the answer is you just gave is that it's really for um, not so much for beginners, but, um, you know, maybe people who are uh, somewhere along the uh, journey of prayer and uh, they're serious about really growing in their prayer life. Is that correct? And that's correct. And, and who is not serious? And people, there are so many people who are serious about God and they want to have um, more time in prayer. I see that in New York City that, you know, the city is good that we have churches open, you know, in normal times and even now. And people come in and pray. There are a lot of serious people who go to daily mass who, who, who need prayer. And and then they real, you know, they need perhaps some guidance also to realize this is more profound than I realized at first. And and you know, to have personal relations with God and the kind of like a marriage, you know, the the you know ongoing first decade, second decade, third decade of this as we go on in life, how how that evolves. Well, that's a good comparison. I mean, uh, you comparing it to marriage, marriage is something we have to keep working at. It's not, uh, you know, it's, it just doesn't uh, automatically get better or grow deeper. And, and, and it sounds like you're comparing that to prayer life, that we really have to work at it, that it's something that it takes constant effort on our part. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the, one of the themes in your book is the hiddenness of God, you know, kind of the paradox of the... Um, the hiddenness of, of the God that we're searching for. And, and uh, you know, how does that work? What is that about? Well, I think as Catholics, it's a, it's, it's not only a great question, but it's so much part of our life because we as Catholics, we go to churches where there is a tabernacle, where we have mass and we're, we're, you know, we just had the feast of Corpus Christi. The reality of our Lord showing himself in the fragility of what appears to be near post, and yet the momentous magnitude of God is present there, our Lord, the risen Christ, showing us invisibly his wounds in the Eucharist. So that, that, that reality of his hiding is a constant in our Catholic life. The other reality, though, it's a, it's a reality, it's a truth of our 
pursuit of him, almost like I mentioned this in the beginning of the first book, The Contemplative Provocations, is a kind of game, almost a serious game, of hiding with God. And he's the one who hides, and we have to continue to seek him. And he shows a glance here and there, and we have to maintain in a persevering way that pursuit of him. And well, that's good. So let me, um, you know, along the, that topic uh, of the whole idea of the, uh, you know, the awareness of God's constant present in our presence in our lives, I think, um, you know, we need to focus on that. We kind of, you know, everyday Catholic. I want to read one quote from your book. There are, there are a thousand quotes I could read from your book, but we, I'm not going to have time to do probably more than one of them. I want to mainly hear you talk about it, but let me read this one quote. Kind of, what we're, kind of what we're talking about right now, and, and, and this is it. You say, quote, the great truth at the heart of prayer is the one who is addressed in prayer. The holy presence of God hiding in prayer begins to show itself, and then a curtain lifts, changing everything. On that day, the spoken words of prayer seem as if they elevate and climb over a wall, carrying the soul into an inner chamber where a Communication now becomes possible. All becomes new in that interior location. An awareness crystallizes that God is in truth present, listening to words and to the soul of silence. The realization of our Lord's actual presence alters prayer irrevocably. Words that are for years were stayed and lifeless are now directed towards a destination in the heart of God, unquote. Maybe you could comment on that a little more. Well, that, that paragraph is in the uh, chapter on con conversion, you know, in, in prayer. And I don't want to say over-dramatized, but some people do have the experience on a day, perhaps more quietly in front of a tabernacle or a monstrance, or speaking on board in the Eucharist, or looking at a an image of Our Lady, Our Lady of Guadalupe. And there is that, you know, crossing of the threshold and awareness. And the key word in that, you know, maybe throughout that book is presence. You know, at some point his presence is really sensed that he is real. And that affects dramatically our life, that we realize God is not simply a kind of abstraction far away and distant. But he is real, the real person of Jesus Christ that can come through a psalm, as mentioned in that passage. Uh -huh. And I think, you know, it's one of those things that God gives us a gift, you know, on an unusual way. Sometimes the gift of conversion happens in that manner. And if it happens, but I think the, the perseverance in prayer is the, the key thing. Once we realize God is real, then we have to walk forward and keep, you know, keep to it. Keep the steadiness of like going to daily mass or praying the daily rosary, something of reading scripture every day. Those things are not dramatic, but they do, you know, root ourselves in God and his presence, you know, again and again. I think God loves to see repeated practices you know, Carmelites do this, missionaries of charity, monks. Though they're not repetitive, they're repeated acts of turning to him. 
And I think that's really where presence of God is, is so often we encounter without suddenly we realize he's right there. Well, that kind of connects with the uh, next thing I was going to ask you, and that is, uh, you know, so once once you, you get to this threshold that we I just read about and you just went into more detail of actually becoming really aware of the presence of God in our lives, and th that kind of starts to propel us along in a, in a, a deeper uh, prayer life. But then um, a big part of your book is about how that presence is not constantly felt. And as a matter of fact, and this is a big theme that you deal with, a lot of times we feel the lack of presence, spiritual darkness. And so you have recommendations, some of them you just described here, uh, about what we should do when we feel that lack of God's presence, that spiritual darkness. Uh, and I think that's kind of a major theme of this book. You've touched on it a little bit, but maybe you could uh, give some other thoughts about what, what people can do uh, to kind of spiritual darkness uh, that we're not going to always feel that presence. Okay, I mean, I think it's good to be uh, conscious that, you know, prayer depends primarily on faith, hope, and love, and especially faith and love. And faith is not a feeling. Faith is certitude. It's in our awareness, our mind. It's a, it's a virtue of the intellect. And that deep awareness that, you know, he is there. And it does help. I think, you know, many people do find... It helps to pray in front of a tabernacle or a monastery in a church. I mean, here at St. At Patrick's Cathedral, I tell people all the time, sometimes mass, I shouldn't say all the time, but in masses and in confessions, go to a church, if you can, if you work in a city, get into a church every day. And I think that kind of, you know, it doesn't matter what we feel, we could agitation, we can have, you know, be down, we can have, be full of fatigue, but that steady placing of the encounter with God, that has effects. And, and I think, too, you know, we, we talk about feeling the presence, we're very capable of making serious acts of love and feeling inside. And, you know, God does not measure us by feeling. He very conscious of that willed act in longing for him. Yeah. He retreats with the missionaries of charity. I like this expression, soul longing. You know, not emotional longing, but soul longing. That kind of deeper reality that I really want only you. And I think that's a key to prayer that we discover that it's like plunging down into deeper water and realizing now it's time to swim in a, in a more serious way with God. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point about love is really more of an act of the will. And oftentimes, it, as you say, it doesn't have the, that much to do with feelings. Sometimes we have feelings, but Colby uh, had a lot of great sayings. And one that I memorized is, is that love is an act of the will which nourishes and and uh, satisfies itself by suffering, sacrifice, and the cross. And, uh, you know, in other words, love is an act of the will that demands sacrifice on our part. It doesn't always demand, and oftentimes it's not about good feelings. And I think that's what you're talking about when it comes to prayer. 
Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. I mean, you're quoting Maximilian Kolbe, and I think most of us, in, you know, with God, we would like to receive something. We would like to even to know the experience of loving him. We want to have an experience. And I think the, the greater, you know, effort in prayer, and it's you know, over years, is to put our attention on him. You know, to look at him on a cross. Many saints maybe became saints because they prayed before crucifix and they contemplated the wounds of our Lord. They tried to enter deeply through those wounds into, into divine love. You know, they lost themselves before God. So, yeah. you know, that effort is a, it's an effort over time. And, you know, to let go of self and, be you know, focused on him. So, Father, let me ask you. So, uh, that's one of the central themes in your book. Another one, obviously, is silence. The importance of silence. You serve as a priest at perhaps one of the busiest parishes in the world, in the heart of New York City, St. Patrick's Cathedral. How do you uh, personally find the silence that is essential for your contemplative prayer? And how how can then maybe we can learn from you on that regard? Well, I mean, for years, I've always found getting up early in the morning is a, is not a necessity. And, you know, in New York City, that there's still horns in an ordinary day is the honking in the morning or the golf trucks or whatever. But to get into a, a, a chapel early in the morning, is, I can't imagine life without that now. And, I mean, if, if I would recommend to people Go to bed a little bit earlier and try to get up a little earlier and have some prayer. You know, I was thinking, you know, Father's Day is coming this, this Sunday. I learned think, from my own father to see my father up early in the morning and see him at night praying by his bed. And he'll go to the... Uh, He's part of the Nocturnal Adoration Society at that time in, in the parish. And, you know, people who pray do sacrificial things. They get up earlier or, you know, they go to bed earlier for the sake of that. And, you know, to me, that, that, that's always been possible. I, I have to have that, that time in the morning. And then if it's time later in the day, that's extra. I, that's great. So that's something, I mean, you mentioned we often think of, you know, people in monasteries, monks or, or nuns who have these regular times they pray and sometimes in the middle of the night. But I think your point for us, for you and the lesson for us is that we can uh, we can have a regular time. For a matter of fact, we should have a regular time of prayer. And uh, probably like uh, many things, the best time is getting up earlier in the morning, whether it's, uh, you know, spiritual exercise or physical exercise. But in this case, spiritual and uh, having that set of time, uh, time set aside for regular prayer. No, I agree with that because I think, you know, I've read sometimes when the saints say, well, and praying at night, you know, was so fruitful, so contemplative, but most of us are a little tired at night. But getting up in the morning, you're fresh, you know, your mind is very clear, and maybe a quick cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and to go to a chapel when it's quiet. That's a beautiful thing. And I see it here in St. Patrick's Cathedral. As soon as the door opens at 6.30, we have at least 50 people coming right in before the 7 o'clock mass. 
throughout the day, there's a nice, quiet, blessed sacrament chapter, and people there all day who find that need for some quiet. Of course, as you mentioned, with as Catholics, we have the real presence of Jesus Christ, the Blessed Sacrament, uh, and we need to take full advantage of that. And and I, when I was a little boy, I was taught by the nuns and, and by my father, who was a daily communicant. You know, if you don't have time to go to mass, just stop in for a visit. You know, a five minute visit with God in the Blessed Sacrament is such a great thing, such a privilege. You know, I I, I totally agree with that, and I, I I think if you work in a city. It's almost inexcusable. Give, give it, you know, take a visit to the church. Yeah, yeah. And you're on the streets within a few blocks. There's got to be a Catholic church open. Yeah. Well, Father, let me ask you this: Your book, Contemplative Enigmas, discusses the addiction that many people have today to technology. Do you recommend that a person in that situation goes about stemming that addiction in favor of this type of silent contemplative prayer that you outline in your book. Well, I don't know if I use the word addiction, but I think there's, there's a tremendous uh, dependency and compulsive need for distraction that's gotten into people because of technology. And it's not, maybe in the old days it was the radio and the television, but now the, the smartphone, you know, the access to the internet, which is there all the time. And... I think there is a there's a spiritual effect on this. You know, it's not just that people are living a distracted life, but there's no there's a it blocks the uh, need for greater depth, some silence, you know, to calm down a bit, to be in an open space in the interior life, not to have noise, you know, around us or within us all the time. So. I, I think people, if anybody's watching, uh, I would I would agree that to try to put discipline in the use of uh, the phone and not to be compulsive with that. I mean, I ride the subways a lot in New York, and I would say 50% or more of people, probably more, always looking into the cell phone. And yeah, we could pray a little bit. We could think a little bit. There, now, there's, there's a, there are other options there. Yeah, and of course, uh, you know, it's all ages. It's no longer just young people. I mean, uh, you know, adults and sometimes old adults or older adults are, are guilty of that. It, it is, uh, you know, even for myself, uh, I, I, I've never been a, a big uh, modern technology guy, but I, I find myself using my cell phone for way too many things. And uh, so I can learn from what you just said. So let me read a quote to you that I really like from uh, that connects with the next question I have for you. This is a quote from either uh, Emerson or Thoreau. I, I always get those guys uh, mixed up, but this is uh, appropriate for uh, this topic. And, and this quote goes like this. The mass of humanity live lives of quiet desperation, worrying themselves into nameless graves, while here and there a great unselfish soul forgets himself into immortality. So, um, you know, a large part of contemplative prayer that you talk about in your book, Father, involves a true self-forgetfulness. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think, the you know, it's good to be reminded, you know, that's so much at the heart of the gospel itself. 
Yeah. yeah. Lose ourself, you know, for love of him. And and so, you know, in, in part, that's a kind of mortification in a certain way internally that we try in everything, you know, with family, with a spouse, perhaps, you know, our work to put our attention beyond ourself toward the other and listen well to be a person who is attentive to others and attentive to a sermon, even if it's boring or attentive to the mass, attentive to our reading and getting out itself. That's a key kind of dynamism in prayer because to pray, we have to have a turn beyond ourselves. You know, it's actually, it's mentioned in, in some of the writings on contemplative life. And, you know, one of the great obstacles there is to, to turn on self, to have self-regard, to be in some manner contemplating ourselves. Well, the opposite is what really opens us to God. You know, you think of a person like Mother Teresa or her sisters. You know, they are not always full of, you know, mystical they're not full of mystical life but they're full of love and and they're and mother Teresa was so full of love because they turned outside self you know to the poor people to one another and to me that's a that's a key dynamism in prayer and we have to live that outside of chapel outside of prayer if we're going to have that fruit in prayer So, um, you know, you mentioned Mother Teresa, um, you know, when that uh, book came out about her after she died, about her own personal spiritual darkness, um, which apparently went on for years and years. I think that was an eye opener for a lot of people and maybe even shocking for a lot of people to think that such a holy, happy, loving woman would have to deal with such spiritual darkness and for such a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, that was, it was a shock to her sisters, I know. And But I, I mentioned, I have a paragraph in the book um, quoting from or mentioning this father, uh, Joseph Nooner. And he was a Jesuit who lived many years, of a Belgian or a Jesuit, who lived many years in India. And Mother Teresa was writing to a number of priests in the 1950s, got to know him in the late 1950s. And at one point, he said to Mother Teresa, Mother, the reason why you're undergoing this trial is wants you not just to serve the poor, but that you have to know you yourself are one of the poorest of the poor. Hmm. That statement, it didn't take the darkness away, but it was a great insight, apparently, from Mother Teresa. In that book, Come Be My Life, and she writes to him afterwards, thanking him that helped her so much. And then there, there are very few letters. There are some, but the letters drop off significantly after that. So I think uh, I found that a great insight because really all of us, we are all the poorest of the poor. You know, and the more we kind of accept that, realize it, interpret experiences in that light, you know, then God draws closer. He's happy uh-huh. to accept, you know, being childlike, but also being among the poor. 
That's beautiful. Do you do you still work with the missionaries? Oh yeah, they're they're like my second family, or almost, almost could say my first family now. Nice. Yeah, very always, nice. And we're we're fortunate here. They have six convents in New York City. I know San Francisco also. We do have them. Yeah, Mother Teresa actually came to Ignatius Press once, saw the Fessio, knew her, of course, and we published a number of books, you know, about her, by her. And she used to come and visit their their sisters in San Francisco, and Father would say Mass for them. So she came to the press one day and prayed uh, prayed with us. And, uh, you know, it was just a great honor to have her there. And then she went outside and went around the corner to visit the Carmelite nuns. And just walking down the street, all of a sudden, a huge crowd was around her. People just recognized her. And she had all these miraculous medals that she used to uh, give out to people in her in the pocket of her habit. So she, you know, she just started giving out miraculous medals. But what a great experience it was for us to meet Mother Teresa and to have her pray with us at Ignatius Press. And, and as you mentioned, you know, this is a woman who was undergoing a great interior trial, perhaps throughout all of those years. And, yeah. But she turned outside of herself and... You know, she gave to others. Her attention was on others. Now she, yeah. was, but the same principle, you know, works for us. The more we give ourselves in generosity, I mean, that also affects our prayer life. Then that that turn away from self, you know, is an open door then to God when we go to prayer. Yeah. So talking about, you know, we talked about love as an act of the will, and obviously Mother Teresa had to make constant acts of the will dealing with the spiritual darkness to show this love that she always had for people and for God. So it's just an amazing testament for us. Let me ask you about one more thing I want to ask you about before we close. Um, how would you suggest that people uh, who read your book um, use the book? I mean, as a devotional or something that they read little by read all, little by little or sit down and read it all at once. What, what do you recommend? Well, I I always like myself books that I read a little bit, a short portion and um, ponder it, you know, dwell on it. I mean, I have to I have to say too, when I wrote this book, I wanted to write a book that people would want to go back to, and um, I think even it's written in those concise paragraphs that can stand alone. Something like almost those Magnificat meditations that so many people yeah. do these days. Yeah, those and, are great. Yeah, they are great. And I think um, that's the kind of writing it is. I would not race through such a book like that. Um, I think, you know, slowly pondering it, perhaps as part of prayer in the beginning, and then with some thoughts and insight. I mean, that's the kind of book I look upon it as, not a... Uh, yeah, and it seems like it seems like all of your books that we've published, at least the three of them in this in this, uh, in this. Uh, are basically books like that that you read a little part at a time and you use it for kind of contemplation. I mean, I, I like that kind of book, so I ended up writing that kind of book. So, <laughs> all right, I, well, I have one more to ask you about. That is the rosary. You talk about the rosary a little bit in your book and the um, how powerful, how beautiful the prayer it is, and uh, maybe you could just talk about. Um, that prayer and, and how, you know, the benefits of the rosary and, and why you recommend it so strongly. Well, I, I find it so, uh, you know, we don't have to necessarily have a good mind or imagination for the meditation on the mysteries, but we do mm -hmm. try to have a sense in faith 
Mary is hearing us. And I always like the, uh, the thought that Mary made the sign of the cross with Bernadette when Bernadette prayed the rosary. And she yep. Bernadette to pray the Hail Marys. She didn't, she prayed the Our Father. And the, um, the beauty of Mary really hearing our prayer. And I think it's an extraordinary thing. I've said it in sermons. How many Marys are prayed throughout the world in one day? Because yeah. of the I mean, so many thousand. And how many people are saying over and over, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Yeah. At the hour of our death. Dying on any day, and those prayers, the rosary has to be a very powerful effect for the salvation of souls. I, mean, yeah. I have a great, I would say, devotion, desire for the salvation of those who are dying. People who are on their deathbed, I really do believe because of Mary, they can receive that last grace of final repentance. And I think the rosary is. Is a powerful thing for that. So it again, it's a way of turning our attention outside of self for a greater purpose. Well, Father, that's a beautiful. Thank you for that. That's a beautiful way to end this conversation. We could talk for hours about your books. There's just so much rich material in them. Uh, we've uh, kind of uh, scratched the surface a little bit, and hopefully, um, those who are listening or who will listen later after this is recorded. Uh, take advantage of your beautiful books on contemplative prayer. So uh, begin, again, on behalf of Ignatius Press, I want to thank you for writing the books. Thank you for uh, all that you do in your vocation as a priest. And um, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about your latest book, uh, Contemplative Enigmas. And people can get your books at your local Catholic bookstore if you have one. We encourage you always to patronize your local Catholic bookstore. Uh, if you don't have one, uh, please uh, then just come to our website, Ignatius.com, or you can call our toll-free number to order Father Haggerty's books, and that's 800-651-1531, 800-651-1531. So, Father Haggerty, thank you again for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Tony, and I want to thank Ignatius Press, who has been very good to me. Thank you so much for, for accepting these books. You. you are welcome. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at Ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.